America is back. Diplomacy is back. Well, you know what? Okay. Present everywhere, from Lithuania to the Sahel, to Afghanistan, to Iraq, to Lebanon. War and Peace, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. This episode of War and Peace, a podcast by the International Crisis Group, was produced with the support of Stiftung Merkator. Welcome back to War and Peace, a podcast from the International Crisis Group. I'm your host, Alyssa Jobson, speaking to you from Brussels. For the second time this season, we're joined by two crisis group experts, Lisa Mussol, our senior EU analyst, and Giuseppe Fama, our head of EU affairs, who gave us a rundown of Crisis Group's 2022 EU watch list back in January, which identified 11 countries where the EU could best act to prevent conflict and save lives. Since then, things on the European continent have changed dramatically. Russia's invasion of Ukraine in February brought war to the European Union's doorstep, causing untold devastation in Ukraine itself and sending powerful global shockwaves, affecting everything from energy prices to food supply. Europe's gravest security crisis in decades has had a particularly transformative impact on the EU, forcing the organisation to take unprecedented decisions on security, defence and enlargement. Whether this heralds a new era of bold foreign policy remains to be seen. Regardless, the emphasis the EU is placing on the war in Ukraine means that it risks neglecting other conflicts ranging from Nagorno-Karabakh to Libya, where peace processes are under threat. Giuseppe and Lisa have been carefully following these developments inside the EU and around the globe. This week, they're going to talk us through Crisis Group's watchlist update, which has just been published and which highlights five countries, including Ukraine, where EU action could make a difference. Giuseppe, Lisa, welcome to War and Peace. Hello, Elisa. I'm very happy to be back. Hello, also from my end. Nice to be there. So I want to start with the Ukraine war. Perhaps you could tell us how the EU has responded to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The EU's response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine has in a way been surprising. Looking at the track record of EU foreign policy and the way it did react to major conflicts flaring up across the world, that shows that the EU perceived the escalation with Russia as no less than an existential threat to itself. And it did mobilise pretty much all of its uh, instruments that it could already deploy to increase the cost of uh, the Russian aggression. And to do so, the European Union and its member states really overcame many of the internal debates that were going for long about the use of their own tools. For the first time ever, they agreed the delivery of lethal weapons to a third country, and they've done so in scale. They decided to boost their security cooperation, also, of course, in the context of NATO, in the face of the increased threats coming from Moscow. They mobilized the harshest set of sanctions that the EU has ever imposed on a third country, even beyond those that were imposed on Iran for its uh, nuclear enrichment program. And even sent some, although mixed, but signal of openness, well, if not membership of closer association to the EU for those states in its eastern neighborhood. And then, not least, they also deployed all their humanitarian, both to support those being most affected within Ukraine, but also to help shore up 
the humanitarian impact of the war within the EU itself. And for the first time ever, activating what goes by the name of Temporary Protection Directive, which grants temporary residency to Ukrainian refugees within the European Union, basically overcoming all the hurdles that we have seen in other major crises. At the same time, the war is also changing the face of NATO. And we've seen the request of membership coming by Finland and Sweden that also do relate to the way that the EU member states see their security in the continent. But in doing so and in scaling up the response, especially on the security side, this has also raised many new questions for the EU and its member states. Thanks, Giuseppe. Lisa, you could perhaps tell us a little bit about the support that the EU has given Ukraine in terms of armaments and weapons. I mean, I understand that it is going to provide more than 2 billion euros worth of weapons, including lethal armaments, to Ukraine. Yes, indeed. It's quite an interesting development specifically for EU watchers that the EU has mobilized this amount of funding for lethal equipment for another country. It has done that through a new fund that the EU established just last year, where it for the first time ever gave itself the power to provide such funding for military equipment to partner countries. But so far, it had never done that before. And just to get a sense of the proportions I always like to highlight that the EU has, in the last year before Russia's invasion of Ukraine, taken a long time to negotiate just 31 million euros of non-lethal military support for Ukraine. And it has taken months to basically agree to this. And then after the 24th of February, the EU had mobilized 1 billion euros of arms and ammunition support within weeks. So it just gives you an understanding of the scale for the EU and the EU member states of how much they have supported the war in Ukraine in comparison to what they were able to do in the past. So that is a quite unique development that we have seen. When you were last on the show in January, you'd stressed the need for the EU to bolster its foreign policy arsenal. It seems like it's done that in the last few months. And obviously, you've explained that this is a real sea change in EU foreign policy. Could you explain what it means for European security more broadly? I mean, Giuseppe, you touched on NATO in your answer earlier, but it would be good to get a sense from you. What does the European security landscape look like now? Well, I have to say that it's no exaggeration that the war in Ukraine has been a real watershed moment for the European Union. A good colleague in the policy bubble here in Brussels referred to Putin, a future founding father of the European Union, making a joke, of course, in the way that the action taken by Russia have prompted a real drive towards a common response among EU member states and even advancing their own thinking about what they need to do in terms of integration from defense, but also in terms of you know fiscal responses and the way they do coordinate with their policies. I mean, Lisa before referred to how the whole discourse around the EPF had changed in a matter of weeks. But at the same time, if you consider, for instance, the scale of the financial support the EU has been putting outside, the speed for which the Commission has basically enabled its member state to use budget allocated for many other programs, including kind of regional development, to cope with the impact in Ukraine. And even when we look at the response in terms of asylum, that even at the height of the so-called migration crisis in 2015, EU member states never agreed to deploy. So this has been indeed a fundamentally driving moment for European foreign policy to the extent that it even relaunched ideas around the very order of Europe, how the European Union relates to the European Union security order. And that has been very much also the case for the EU's own vision of its common defence. 
Yes, indeed. And maybe to add to that, it's very hard at this moment in time to see where the European security architecture is going, given that it has been completely upended by the war that Russia started. But we definitely see, as Giuseppe already mentioned, that there's certainly a rekindling of the transatlantic alliance and stronger ties now between the EU and NATO. And at the same time, we also see quite a lot of momentum behind European defense integration. The EU has already launched a strategic compass just relatively shortly after the war. It's a document that provides a threat analysis and gives a greater direction to the bloc's security and defense activities. And just also a couple of days ago, the Commission and the High Representative provided an analysis of the defense investment gaps that still exist and provided some recommendations for further action for European defense, which is also showing that there is more momentum now to advance European defense integration, while at the same time doing this, of course, in coordination with NATO. In the watch list update, we say that European leaders should aim to create incentives for both Moscow and Kiev to come to talks. We also caution them and also other Western actors from raising the stakes too much What do you think the EU can do at this stage to help bring the parties to the negotiation table and to prevent a further escalation of the conflict? One critical question is also what should be discussed at the table. One of the key issues to be discussed is also the future of the European security order, taking into account that one of the reasons that prompted the Russian aggression, it's zero-sum view of the security order in Europe and its insatisfaction with the status quo. So this question is essential also to advance basically towards peace, along with, of course, the very situation in Ukraine and all the questions revolving around the prior conflict in eastern Ukraine, in the Donbas. One problem is that at this stage, working an agreement based on dialogue between Russia and the West is, of course, extremely challenging to negotiate given the state of the overall relations. But it is in everybody's interest to factor in a future agreement, elements that can help redefine the parameters for essentially weapon deployments in the continent, the you know, limits to exercises and military activities across Europe that can be perceived as sustainable by all parties. And on top of the specific elements for Ukraine, the EU has a very important tool to help advance towards negotiations, which is sanctions. Generally speaking, the sanctions are basically broken into four categories. There are those that are punishing Russia as a whole, those that are punishing specific individuals, who are identified as responsible for the actions that led to the war. There are economic and trade restrictions that are basically constraining Russia's spending capacity. And finally, the sanctions that limit Russia's strategic capacity as a military actor. Now, some of these sanctions are likely to stay in place even in the future. Let's think of those especially related to Russia's military power. But other constraints, other sanctions can be used also to bring back an incentive element in the relationship between the European Union and the West, more broadly, and Russia, especially those punitive measures against the state as a whole or certain individuals, and even some related to Russia's financial capacity. In the past, we have urged the European Union to consider uh, signaling right away the possibility of making some of the sanctions clearly reversible in the exchange of positive, verifiable steps from Russia to not only de-escalate, but also help roll back basically the state of its own invasion. And you know, putting those elements and clearly communicate to Russia 
that sanctions are not only meant as a punitive measures, but they are also one instrument that once in place can be tweaked. Perhaps you could tell us about how the EU can prevent the war from escalating. I think that is an absolutely crucial point that we are also making in our watch list uh, numerous times. We are highlighting how great of a risk there is that this war escalates and draws in the whole of NATO and pitches it against Russia. And we do see that the EU has to do a very careful balancing act right now when it is providing its support to Ukraine. Because on the one hand, it should keep sending weapons and non-lethal material and financial assistance to help Ukraine to hold the line against Russian invasion. But on the other hand, it has to prevent as much as possible an escalation that draws other countries into the war. To do that, it will be extremely important to refrain from rhetoric that is escalatory and that suggests regime change in Russia. And it's also important to refrain from certain steps that could contribute to an escalation, such as, for example, providing training on Ukrainian soil to Ukrainian troops and to continue avoiding engagement of their own allied partners and forces in the fight. And at the same time, what we think is also very important is to increase the monitoring uh, for the weapons that are flowing into the country and trying to find safeguards as that is possible in the current circumstances to prevent these weapons to fall into the wrong hands. War and Peace, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. So I want to talk now about how the war in Ukraine is affecting the EU's external actions around the world. We've seen how much money and attention the European Union has been spending on the Ukraine war, not surprisingly, given that this is a massive conflict on its doorstep. I wondered if you could tell us how has the war in Ukraine affected the EU's engagement in other crises, other conflicts around the world? Indeed, this is also something that we see and that we are a little bit concerned with is that the war in Ukraine is changing the perception that the EU has of other countries and of other conflicts. In the watch list, there are quite a few examples where we see this happening and we make the case that it's very important for the EU to insulate its conflict prevention efforts as much as possible from its standoff with Russia and continue its crisis prevention efforts as much as possible, including, if necessary, with engagement with Russia. So an example is the situation in Mali. The relations between the EU and Mali have already been at a low even before the war, especially also because of the Malian authorities' cooperation with the Wagner Group, Russian private military company, which is already seen by the EU very controversially before the war. But the war in Ukraine has made the EU see this uh, in a different light and is probably one of the factors that has encouraged many European troops to eventually leave the country and the EU also to spend its training mission. While we understand that these the relations are at the moment very difficult, also because of the Malian authorities' anti-Western rhetoric and difficult relations with France, we do think that it is very important for the EU to stay engaged as much as possible and to keep channels of communication open with authorities, especially to be able to support the ECOWAS-led talks in the country and to try to find a way to get the Malian transition back on track and to ultimately support the transition as much as possible once there is an agreement. And while relations are difficult with the Malian authorities, the EU should also find ways to increase its diplomatic and financial support to the Malian civil society, making sure that they can do their work as freely as possible in the country and monitor the situation. 
Pakistan is perhaps another area where relations between Europe and the government there are tense. Perhaps you could tell us a little bit about what is happening in Pakistan and how relations have deteriorated. Pakistan is also a case where we see how the EU strategic patience is important. We've seen that there has been a significant deterioration of relations under former Prime Minister Imran Khan, who was openly very close to the Russian government and had an increasingly anti-Western rhetoric in his speeches and in his relations with the EU and other Western partners. But the EU was always aware that the Pakistani elite and also the powerful military did not necessarily agree with these positions. And with the change of government in Pakistan and with the Sharif government at the moment, there's a very different change of tone, which allows the EU to rebuild its relations with Pakistan at a very important moment where conflict prevention is extremely important given the tense political situation in the run-up to the elections, which will be extremely polarized. And we think that the EU can now play a very important role on rebuilding relations with Pakistan, resetting the planned exchanges with Pakistan and also using a little bit more more pressure specifically to push forward democratic reforms in the country that can help stabilize the situation. In the watch list update, we also identify a couple of crises, Nagorno-Karabakh and Libya, where the EU has to engage with Russia to make sure that, that conflicts don't deteriorate or that processes uh, for the peace processes that are ongoing don't unravel. What do you think are the biggest challenges for the EU in engaging both on Nagorno-Karabakh and in Libya? It is important that the EU, together with other parties, does anything it can to prevent crisis worldwide from being affected by the spillover of the Ukraine war and multilateral diplomacy. So far, we have seen a relatively mild impact on some of the cases, for instance, coming through the Security Council, where Russia has not yet vetoed any non-Ukraine uh, resolution. But as you said, in Nagorno-Karabakh and in Libya, this can complicate is making efforts. In Nagorno-Karabakh, essentially, in the shadows of the invasion in Ukraine, uh, new clashes took place between Armenia and Azerbaijan. In March, Azerbaijani forces seized a portion of territory around uh, Farukh, which is an Armenian-populated village. In subsequent talks between Yerevan and Baku, there has been signs that the two parties are willing to engage further, indicated that neither of them is basically ruling out the possibility of a peaceful settlement, although, of course, they remain very much divided on many of uh, the core issues in this conflict. What is clear is actually that whether the situation will deteriorate or improve further, the EU can help uh, move things in a positive direction, facilitating diplomatic efforts and also preserving Russia's own positive role in conflict resolution in this area. So despite tensions between Moscow and European capitals on the war in Ukraine, you should continue to support Russia's uh, efforts to resolve the dispute between Armenia and Azerbaijan and avoiding essentially any action that would block mediation efforts by Russia. But on top of that, having already uh, worked to bring leaders from Armenia and Azerbaijan together for talks it can also work with each side to develop a format and an agenda for further negotiation, basically using its good offices to iron out some differences and in particular help address disagreements over the common border between the two countries, in particular some of the most violent flashpoints that have seen the most deadly skirmishes since the 2020 conflict. At the same time, on top of Russia itself, the EU should preserve 
the role of the OSCE, the Organization for Security Cooperation in Europe, in, in its Minsk group, which has been so far the main international format to engage on Nagorno-Karabakh, and that although hampered by the conflict in Ukraine, has a significant role to play. And finally, as the largest donor in the region, the EU should make it clear that it's also ready to fund its dividend to help ease the conflict area's most pressing problems. And by doing that, uh, it should also essentially condition some of its aid also to the resolution of the conflict that so far has remained a stranger to the way the European Union was uh, framing its own development aid to Armenia and Azerbaijan. Turning to Libya, we've seen the Wagner Group, as in Mali, is operational in the east of the country. How is that complicating the EU's attempts to prevent violence re-erupting in Libya? Well, the presence of the Wagner Group in Libya was one of the main concerns that the EU had already over the past eight years when looking at the presence of foreign players that could interfere in the standoff between rivaling parties in the country. And although the company appears to have withdrawn some of its fighters since Russia invaded Ukraine, leaving only less than a thousand operatives in Libya, European members are very concerned that the confrontation between Russia and the EU and more generally the West could lead Moscow to use the Wagner basically as a proxy to further destabilize Libya, both when it comes to the use of conflict resolution attempts, but also to weaken NATO's southern flank. So in essence, in Libya too, Russia needs to be involved in all the diplomatic efforts required to help Libyan faction come together to resolve their renewed political standoff. And what the EU and its member states should do is to maintain at least a discrete channel of communication with Moscow over the situation in the country, which can actually destabilize everybody's interest. In 2021, an interim government had managed to reunite two competing cabinets representing different factions that had found an agreement to schedule parliamentary and presidential elections that could basically reform the institutional landscape of the country and agree to a new elected government. However, these elections were first postponed multiple times, then cancelled at the last minute, and now the country is basically uh, again stuck in a standoff between two rival governments, one which is based in Libya's capital in Tripoli, and one which is currently based in the coastal city of Sirte in central Libya, but which basically works with the backing of constituencies from the east. And although yet this rivalry has not bursted into an open violent conflict, of course it bodes significant possibility to spiral again into an armed confrontation. On top of that, the dispute between the rivaling parties is also eroding the country's stability on many other levels, and that includes disputes uh, on the oil revenues, which are essential for Libya's state budget and also for the management of, of all the economic institutions of the country. So this crisis has also significant impact not only on its security, but also on its energy interest in the face of the European attempts to diversify its imports and reduces the dependence on Russian gas and oil. So the dispute over the oil itself has destabilizing effects not only on Libya, but also on Europe. So in order to help overcome the stalemate, the EU can build on a successful experience that also led uh, to the progress in 2021, which was the Berlin conferences in 2020 and in the following year, where Berlin, Paris, Rome, but also other capitals, also packed with by Moscow, decided to work with the foreign players, the foreign stakeholders, to help 
nudge the rivaling parties towards an agreement. And if Brussels wants to replicate on that positive experience, it should make sure that Russia is also part as much as other key foreign stakeholders like Egypt, Turkey, the United Arab Emirates and Qatar, as well as regional players like Algeria and Tunisia. It should encourage the warring parties to reach an agreement on the management of Libya's state assets, come to an agreement to a unified state budget and also produce financial arrangements that can put basically the state funds on hold pending the resolution of the conflict itself. Thanks, Giuseppe. The war in Ukraine is having a tremendous impact outside of Ukraine and outside of Europe, affecting energy prices and food supply. Is there anything that the EU can do to help cushion these global commodity shocks for countries that are in crisis This is a very important point that we are making in the watch list as well, that the EU will need to look more at the global commodity crisis and its impact, especially on the most vulnerable, who have already been heavily affected by the COVID-19 pandemic and the economic fallout of that, and are now facing a multitude of shocks, the global price hikes on food as well as fuel, fertilizers. And the EU, as one of the biggest international development and humanitarian donors, has to play an important role in helping countries by providing some emergency aid as much as possible. We've seen already some international action, also from the EU side. They have reallocated some existing development and humanitarian funding and have mobilized some additional aid. But looking at the crisis that we're seeing at the moment and how much already some of the humanitarian crises we see right now are dramatically underfunded, it will be extremely important in the weeks and months to come to really step up these efforts. Some of this is being done through international coordination already. The G7 has just launched, um, together with the World Bank, a global alliance for food security, which is meant to put a lot of the political commitments that have been made also into action and trying to get as many actors as possible involved. And the European Commission is part of this. It's too early to see what this will bring, but we definitely suggest to support these and other initiatives as much as possible to increase aid contributions. But while doing that, it's also important to work on the supply side of the international food crisis right now and trying to re-establish functioning global supply chains for food, fuel and fertilizer and other commodities. So really also looking at the root causes of the current crisis and not just on the consequences. And let me add, Elisa, that the points that Lisa just read are also very important for the EU's uh, diplomatic outreach in the future. Looking at the global fallout of a war that is increasingly more perceived as the West versus Russia instead of a war between Russia and Ukraine, also diplomatic clout of the EU itself. And we've seen that also with the decreasing support to UN Council resolutions sponsored by Western players uh, has been diminishing. So tackling the global fallout of the crisis uh, is also a priority for the EU in all of its other efforts to maintain peace and stability uh, across the world. At the scale of its effort, uh, not only politically and diplomatically, but also financially, have to be higher if the EU wants to make them effective to improve its relationship also uh, with the Global South. Thanks, Lisa and Giuseppe, for coming on for another episode in collaboration with Stiftung Mercator. It's been really fascinating to hear your insights at this time of change for the European Union. Thank you for having us. Thank you, Lisa, and greetings to all the War and Peace listeners.
Make sure to check out the spring update to Crisis Group's 22 EU watch list for more information on the conflict situations we were discussing today. You can find it on our website, www.crisisgroup.org, alongside our extensive coverage of the war in Ukraine. You should also follow Crisis Group and us on Twitter at Crisis Group. I'm at Alyssa Jobson. You can also find Giuseppe. He's at Fama Nel Mondo and Lisa at Lisa Mushol. You can check us out on Facebook and Instagram, which is also at Crisis Group. If you've enjoyed this podcast or have any suggestions, do give us a shout out on Twitter or wherever you are online. You can also email us at podcasts at crisisgroup.org. And of course, we'd really love it if you could give us a rating and a review as well. War and Peace is a partner in a network of podcasts about Europe. Check out Europod for some of the others. Big thanks, as usual, to producer Bull Media and to our coordinators, Finn Dunbar-Johnson and Alex Figurski. Thanks again to Stiftung Mercator for their support in producing this episode. The biggest thanks, as always, goes to you, our listeners. I'm looking forward to speaking with you again in two weeks' time. Goodbye. War and Peace, a podcast by the International Crisis Group.